If you have your Bibles with you or your favorite Bible app, will be in Exodus 34. A little bit of change of gears compared to where we've been the past uh, nine Sundays in Matthew 5 to 7. We're going backwards to Exodus 34. So it's your second book of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. Uh, as a brief reminder, this is the first Sunday in Lent, which means that we're exploring what it means to actually be a Lenten people. What does it mean for us to understand the season of Lent? Uh, what is Lent? Uh, some of us might be raised in particular denominational traditions where Lent was very common. Uh, Southern Baptists typically are hit or miss on this. You might be in one particular uh, church within the Southern Baptist denomination where they hardly ever talk about Lent. Uh, it is one that is greatly uh, founded within the Christian tradition. Uh, it is about 1,700, 1800 years old. And so it, I find it remarkable uh, in many ways in how it can prompt us to be a certain type of people for 40 days and so that's what I want to do. I want to explore what this means for us uh, for the next five weeks up until Resurrection Sunday. So maybe that was enough for you to find your spot. Exodus 34, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? <clears throat> we'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. So Exodus 34, 1 through 9. May you hear the words of Christ. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the, by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. As the Lord had commanded him, and he took uh, in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will be, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin." and take for us your inheritance. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the morning in which you have gifted to your people. It is by sheer grace that this morning has been a gift. And so, Father, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us when we uh, bring obstacles in front of us into the church. And so, Lord, may you break down those obstacles. May you break down those barriers and those walls so that we might hear clearly what it is that you have for us. And forgive us of being exactly what Moses just talked about, an arrogant people. May you humble us and may we be a people of humility because it is in that humility that we can learn and to grow and to mature in your ways. So, Lord, we humble ourselves now so that you can speak 
clearly and audibly to us. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So there might be plenty of you who are... um, who have Twitter, and let me just go ahead and say on the front end, there's plenty of bad things about any social media, and there's plenty of good things about social media that we can be able to point out. But one of the good things about social media, especially Twitter, is that it can be used for research in a number of ways. I mean, as soon as you send a tweet, it becomes a part of the universe of the digital world, and it's open for anybody and everybody to see. Well, Christianity Today, a major magazine uh, for evangelical Christians, did a little study last year, and they looked at all of these hashtags that dealt with Lent. What is it that the rest of the world, mainly America, that was giving up, or what was it that these people were paying attention to in that 40 days of Lent in this Christian season? Well, they came up with a top 100 list. Well, I'm not going to go through your top 100, but I'm going to highlight a few this morning. Here's your first one. Ironically, social media. Social media is the top hit on what people were giving up for Lent. And they're using social media to tell them that they're giving it up. Number four, I'm sorry, Jade, but it's chocolate. Number four on your list. Number six, sorry, gentlemen, meat. That'd be a tough one, especially when you had a pork chop like Eric's over the weekend. Meat. Number seven, swearing. Number eight, I don't know if I could do this one, coffee. Uh, That was tough. Eleven, fast food. Might be some great benefits there. Fourteen, this had to have been some angry women, but men was 14. We're <laughs> giving up men for 40 days. <laughs> some of these are serious, as you can tell, and some are not serious. <clears throat> 18, bread. Not too difficult, I don't think. 36, junk food. Not uncommon. Uh, this had to have been middle schoolers for 38. Homework. Giving up homework for Lent. 44, lying. Not a bad one. Uh, 51, gossip. If you've paid attention to uh, anything within uh, what Pope Francis has said for the at least practicing Catholics, um, this was his main target for Lenten season, is that how does the church talk? How does the church speak as truth-tellers if they do indeed follow Christ as the truth? Then shouldn't they be truth-tellers? So he said, pay attention to how you speak, church. 54, Ice cream. I don't know. 70, caffeine. I don't know how we could survive without that. This has to be a humorous one. 76, bills. I'm giving up bills for 40 days. Uh, 81, this has got to be humorous too. Sleep. Give up sleep for 40 days. See how that works out. Uh, 86, this had to be middle schoolers as well. Hot Cheetos. That's all I see them eat is something hot. Uh, 92, very humorously, uh, oxygen. Good luck holding your breath for 40 days. Uh, 93, spending. And most likely this is just not very thoughtful spending. 
It's just I have it, a little extra money I'm going to go and spend just because I have it. It's probably what they're talking about. And 99 cheating. There's your list. You can go and Google top 100 lists of Christianity today and you can read through all of them. Some will make you cackle and giggle and laugh and some you see that there's this great seriousness about what people, the church, are trying to understand in the season of Lent. And that's exactly what we're focusing on this morning and the next five Sundays is that we understand that items like this, products like this, goods like this, they have a way of being occasionally obstacles, don't they? They have a way of being hindrances in our own lives, especially once it comes to growing and maturing in our spiritual lives. So these possessions, we could say, in many ways, they possess us. They have prevented us from gazing and seeing the very face of Christ. We might even see this captured in the hymn that we occasionally sing, Come Thou Fount. Remember some of those opening lines? That our hearts are prone to wonder. That is one of the very focuses, or really foci, that we see in the season of Lent, is recognizing that our hearts have this ability, this inclination to wonder at times. And so we as very flawed human beings, we're frail. Yeah, we're sinful, we're broken people, as we saw even in our study of uh, the two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to step back and check our priorities. We have to check, uh, step back and check even our commitments that we have made. And so fasting, and don't think of fasting as just, I'm not going to eat food. Fasting comes in a number of different ways in which we understand what our hearts are prone to wander towards and what they really long and desire in its ultimate end. And so Lent is a time in which we fast from a number of things in order for, and here's the part, church, that we are reoriented back towards God Himself. We check our motives, allow Christ to work, that we're redirected and reoriented back to Him. Because I want to ask really this question this morning, and it will sort of set us into uh, the direction I wish for us to really take after for the next five weeks. Do you feel sometimes that you can become so immersed in daily responsibilities daily preoccupations, daily whatever checklist that you have for the day that you can neglect the weightier matters of your spiritual life? That's one of the main questions that we have for Lent. What is preoccupying our lives? And how can we really check our motives so that Christ can work and grow us into His image and His likeness? We can say it like this. What, how do we major on the minors? You heard that phrase before? How do you major on the minors? Instead, how should we redirect our lives that we can major on the majors, the most important things? And so it's seasons like this in the Christian calendar that Lent, they halt us in our busyness. They halt us in, in order to persuade us to slow down and to honestly consider our mortality, that you're only human beings, that you cannot accomplish and achieve everything you put your mind to. You're just human beings. And on top of that, 
we evaluate our broken choices, and we even take time to lament and be sorry for our own sins that are thorns in our sides. And so one of the, I want to tackle a misconception about Lent is that usually it's seen as I give up things. I give up this. I give up that. Well, let me just say that I think that's a shallow view of Lent. I think it's a very flat view of Lent because that's not the priority. That's not the goal. I think a stronger and a healthier view of Lent is not so much a giving up, but a giving to. You see the difference? It's not just a giving up, but it's a giving to. It's a recognition that our weaknesses, we are giving them to Christ, the one who can strengthen and transform us into His image. And on top of that, we're being changed in order to be charged with whatever ministry He set before us, whatever service He set before us, whatever mission He has set before us. So it's not just a transformation, a giving up, for transformation, but it's a giving up, a giving to, to be transformed and to be charged to whatever it is that Christ has set us before. So 40 days of Lent, I think, can be seen as a training ground for the Spirit to work in our lives, to redirect them and to take charge of them so that Christ can work in powerful ways. So that's the hope for this sermon series understand our fleshly ways, our fragile ways, so that the Spirit of Christ can have this own personal transformation in our lives and redirect them for gospel action. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, To give you beyond that, I've seen, as praying through this Lent season, um, the number 40 kept popping in my head. You know, 40 days in which we uh, recognize and acknowledge the season of Lent, but The number 40 is such a powerful portrait, a number within Scripture. And so there are many times in which the number 40 is used, and it's symbolic of how God transforms a people and how God shows up in miraculous ways for a people. And so we're going to look at today, as I saw, if you saw the reading a second ago, Exodus 34, Moses on Mount Sinai. Next week, we're going to look at uh, 40 years Israel was in the wilderness. The week beyond that, Elijah fasted uh, with God in 1 Kings 19. And then we'll end towards looking at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. But in exploring each of these narratives for the next five weeks, I believe we will be led into a more solid and unified Christian community so that we can weep over the things that we're supposed to weep over, but also be able to be transformed in the things that Christ has set before us. So let's do that. Let's look and begin with Moses this morning. Look uh, with me at chapter uh, 34, verse 2. The Lord speaks to Moses and says this, Be ready by the morning and come up to the morning at, at, at morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. I want to focus on one word right here. Present yourself. It's almost like a stationing, a standing still before the face of somebody else. It's two people looking at one another is almost what the Hebrew word here means. They're looking and facing towards one another. And you can almost hear, if you see it in a larger passage, faint echoes of another gospel passage 
in Mark 9, where Jesus takes Peter, He takes James, and He even takes John, and He leads them up on top of this mountain. And what happens is that Jesus is transfigured before them. And what happens is that Jesus becomes so radiantly white, which you find in this passage of uh, chapter 34 of Exodus. And then Elijah and Moses show up before Jesus. It's not a coincidence, church. Jesus is being connected to this prophet and also this major leader of the Old Testament. And Peter, he freaks out and he says, Rabbi, it is so good for us to be here in this moment. Let us build three shelters, one for each of you, and let's take this moment in. Then, Mark records, a cloud appeared. Here you have a cloud in Exodus 34. And a voice came from the cloud saying about Jesus, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one but Christ Himself. And here's how Mark ends it. As they were coming down the mountain. So you see the connections between even Exodus 34 and Mark 9. And that's purposeful. There's intention in that. Because Mark is demonstrating the connections specifically between Moses and Jesus Himself. Here's some things to pick up on. As Moses was chosen to receive the instructions from God, so Jesus is chosen to receive the instructions from God the Father. Moses led out of bondage and slavery all of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. Here you have a similar picture in Mark 9 and beyond in the Gospels that Jesus too is leading a people out of bondage and slavery to sin. But there's differences as well that you find Moses failed, Jesus does not. Moses was disobedient, Jesus continued to keep the will of the Father throughout the entirety of this ministry. But here's some other commonalities. Both Moses and Jesus present themselves before God Himself. And we need to connect to that. Both are before the very face of God Himself. Natives of Ireland, if you've ever been to Ireland or if you've heard stories about the Irish, they refer to places where the divine and the human meet as thin places. As thin places. These are spaces where almost like the curtains of eternity are pulled back from our everyday world. And we get a glimpse of heaven. We get a glimpse of God. And to be specific... Thin places are the places and times where the divine and the human, they nudge against one another. And I don't think that's far from what we're seeing in verse 2. Because he, God tells Moses, be ready in the morning and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Be ready to be nudged by me. And as we're drawn into this encounter between Yahweh, between the Lord and Moses, as I see it, I think we are called to also bring ourselves before the very face of God too. And as the narrative reads, Moses breaks the other two tablets that God originally wrote on, and then he's asked by God to bring two more tablets so he can rewrite this all over again. But notice, Moses has to approach him a second time. So even in the midst of Moses' anger, even in the midst of Moses' arrogance, here is Moses 
coming before the face of God to commune with Him, to speak with Him, to be with Him. And I think that extends the invite even further if you look into verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Remember, the Lord's already met with Moses twice. He meets with him in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He meets with him close to Exodus 19 when there's the first writing of the tablets. And then he meets with him again in order to rewrite on those tablets the instructions that he originally had. But notice that that part of the passage, he descends in a cloud. The French reformer in the 16th century, Jean Calvin, said this, that God enjoys descending in the Scriptures. He enjoys descending to be with the people. That you find this peppered throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, Old and into New Testament. Let me just trace a few. Genesis 11. The Lord descends to see the city of Babel and the tower that the people had built. If you go a few chapters further, Genesis 18. The Lord descends upon Sodom and Gomorrah in order to get closer to hear the cries of the people. If you go even further, Genesis 46, God reveals to Jacob in a vision that He will go down. He will descend with Jacob to where He is sending him into Egypt. In Exodus 19, as we said a second ago, the Lord descends to meet with Moses to the right of the instructions that He has set aside. And Psalm 144, if you jump into the Psalms, the psalm writer requests that the Lord come down that His justice might be made so apparent and real. Isaiah, if you look into the prophets, he speaks of the day when, quote, the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. And if you jump into the New Testament, nothing different. Here you have God yet again descending by incarnating Himself, enfleshing Himself, by tabernacling, to use John's language, with a people. And Paul captures this in his letter to the Philippians where he writes that Christ, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant and being made in human likeness. Church, God descends again and again and again throughout the Scriptures in order to meet us to be in our midst, to meet us in our mess, and in order to minister to our hearts. He draws near. And if there's one theme that you can find in Lent, it is that it is the season in which God descends as we ascend, as we move our lives towards Him. He moves downward as we try to move our lives upward. So in this time of Lent, Lift up your sorrows. Lift up your brokenness. Lift up your sin because He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is gracious and kind. And you even have Him announce this in verses 6-7. through Look with me. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now you might have gotten caught up on a certain verse in there. Because I see it over and over in the years of teaching Scripture. That part in verse 7, that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This verse usually catches our attention. Because when we read it, we think, hmm, it seems like God here is impatient, He's unkind, He's unforgiving, and He's even hostile. But we have to see it in the bigger context in which it's being spoken. There's a contrast here. Notice, He is gracious, He is slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where? And to whom? Thousands of generations. Yet He visits iniquity only to three to four generations. Do you see the contrast there? He might discipline for three to four, but His love abounds for thousands of generations. I don't think this is too uncommon for our own human experience, especially once it comes to parenting. I mean, do you ever have those moments where your children rebel against you? I mean, we don't have that, do we? Ever. Do we? Plenty of times a day where our children, we can directly look at their face and say, please don't do this, and they will turn around and do the exact opposite we just said. But does your love dissolve in those moments? No. It doesn't go away. And in fact... How do we respond? There might be discipline that's involved. That discipline might be immediate. That discipline might be day's worth. Well, I'm going to have to take this away from you. Or you're going to be, uh, you're going to have to deal with this for a week. You're going to have to have this taken away for a month. Their actions might call for different types of discipline but it doesn't last for years at a time. It doesn't last for generations. Why? Because our love towards them goes beyond that moment. And in fact, we could say that discipline itself is a form of love. Likewise, I think that's what God is saying here to us, that the discipline may be necessary for a little while, but we, like parents, our steadfast love, our kindness and our mercy extends far beyond the moments of that necessary discipline. The season of Lent is indeed that gracious reminder, that invitation that we are a broken people and that we have to acknowledge our rebellious mistakes, our rebellious choices and desires, while also simultaneously, and here's the the key to this, we have to recall how gracious, how merciful, how steadfast and loving our God is. It's a both and there, church. If we only focus on our rebellion, we'll wallow in hopelessness, we'll wallow in our own mentally broken selves. And we won't focus how good and gracious our God is. But if you, on the one hand, hold a healthy and realistic view of your own brokenness and sin, and then on the other hand, hold a wildly big view of who God is 
and His grace, I think that will lead us into humility and thankfulness every single time. As one pastor has said, Tim Keller, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. We have to keep those side by side. And here's how our verses end this morning. Verse 8, And Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked or arrogant people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. We might not like that description towards Israel or even ourselves that we are stiff-necked, that we are so arrogant that we cannot see ourselves rightly. In Israel, their attitude and arrogance has pushed them to run from the very God who has redeemed them. If you pay attention to the narrative that's going on, this is Exodus 34. They've been on this journey towards the promised land for about 22 chapters now. They're on the way there, and yet they're arrogant, and they're not thankful for what God has done in redeeming them. And here you have Moses interceding. He's mediating for them, and he's pleading for God to forgive them, to show grace and to pardon their ways. I don't think it's any coincidence, church, that Christ is also understood as a mediator. If you look at the book of Hebrews, He's seen as a mediator for us towards God the Father, and He's also a mediator for God to His people. But even as Christ with our, as our mediator, as our high priest, He understands your confessions, He understands your temptations. In Lent... In this season of 40 days, we must remember from Hebrews 4 that we have a high priest who is able to empathize, to empathize with our weaknesses. We have a priest who has been tempted in every way that we have in his own ministry on earth. He's been tempted. He understands those pains. Yet, he does not sin. And here's what if I can recap what we've heard this morning and lead us into an invitation. God communes with His people. And He does this by descending towards us first through His Son and then by His Spirit. But also God in His very nature is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful to the end. And lastly, He is a God who empathizes with our weaknesses and our temptations. That's what we've seen this morning. Hickory Grove, these verses that we've gone through this morning, these truths that I just said, ought to convict us, but they also should compel us towards Christ this Lenten season. So here's the invitation that I I sense that Christ is pushing us towards, that we are to bear our entire selves for the next 36, 37 days of Lent. And we must allow ourselves to open up and we must allow Christ to to be exposed to the deepest parts of us, the pain and the failures that we might want to cover up, 
that we might want to back away from. But we have to bear all of that to Him. And we have to give these obstacles. We have to give these hindrances to Him that He might create in us a new person, a new creation, one that ultimately looks like Him and imitates Him. That we truly are being renewed in His image. And as odd as this invitation sounds, here it is. May you be wrecked, but also renewed in this season of Lent by Christ. May you be wrecked, but also renewed by Christ this Lent season. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for the reminder that we cannot just hold rebellion in front of our eyes. We can't just hold our broken choices, our broken desires, our false temptations. We can't, we can't just hold that in front of us and say, this is who I am. That's, that's not how You identify us. That's not how You speak about us. You speak about us as a broken people, yes, rebellious, but wildly loved. And so may we keep those two truths together. May we not wallow in our brokenness. Because that's just going to lead us down paths of darkness and pain. But may we take that darkness and that pain and they give them over to You. Whatever hinders us, whatever obstacles that we have, we give them to You. We don't give them up, but we give them to You and recognize that You're a God that is fully able to restore, redeem, and renew. And so Lord... Give us eyes to see what truly holds us up, what barriers that we've placed in front of You. And as we move from day to day throughout the rest of this season of Lent, may You break down those barriers brick by brick by brick. And may we expose ourselves fully to You and recognize that You're a God of grace who enjoys restoring a broken people. And so Lord, we give ourselves to You we open ourselves to You during this time so that You can begin, that You can continue and continue completing Your work that You first began in us. So Father, like a master worker, continue Your work. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.